0: Good afternoon. It's Friday the 26th of February 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningson from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick.
1: Great to be with you, Mike. Um,
0: well, Patrick, you'll be glad to know that according to the Office for National Statistics, uh, the number of people with COVID...
1: With? Okay.
0: Perhaps. Uh, ...is 421,300. Uh, so that is down. That's uh, down to levels not seen since October last year. But despite despite that, uh, the message that's being given to school children is no mask, no school. Uh, This is pretty much the message that's being given. Uh, We've got to wear masks all through classes Uh, in the the autumn uh, before the schools were closed. um, You had to wear a mask in communal areas Uh, outside of the classroom, but inside the classroom, there was no requirement to wear a mask. It's now a requirement to wear a mask uh, at all times.
1: And and that's with children being the least susceptible, uh, according to the authorities of ever getting, uh, not only ever getting COVID, uh, but ever becoming ill uh, from coronavirus, is not that right?
0: Well, that is correct. And uh, well, I am aware of one teacher that was telling uh, their students that uh, you know, because that this is the reason for this is because of these new variants, which are much more contagious, uh, and therefore we've got to stop the spread of those and the masks. Are I, hard I've, to do he- that. I've heard that talking point a lot, Mike.
1: Yes. Uh, I wonder where they read that. It could have been on the inside of a uh, a pub toilet, for all anybody knows, or
0: a beer mat or something. But, but look, uh, th- this is the point. Well, this is one point. I'm finding it quite ironic and quite hypocritical of the schools uh, that they should pursue this policy. Uh, Because, of course, the schools have been uh, pursuing this uh, particular narrative for quite some time now. Uh, This is all about oceans and plastic in oceans. Um, And, uh, well, apparently we can forget all about plastics in in oceans because now we're teaching our children they've got to wear masks. Of course, they're all using these single-use Uh, blue masks, these uh, masks that are full of uh, plastics. We'll come on to that in one second. Six
1: synthetic fibres of petroleum-based products. Yes, of course, of
0: course. But they're they're plastics uh, and they're microplastics and nanoplastics uh, that are being used in those. Um, So um, first of all, are there any particular health risks? Well, here's uh, a a scientific article. Uh, COVID-19 face masks, a potential source of microplastic fibres in the environment. Um, And uh, this is talking about exactly... Uh, this issue of plastics in the environment. Uh, And if we uh, actually look at many, many other articles, for example, this one, uh, 1.56 billion face masks enter the marine environment in 2020. Um, So the schools are telling the kids they've got to wear face masks. At the same time, they're telling the kids that they've got to contribute to the plastics that are in the environment, which they've already told the children uh, is a very bad thing. So what does this do to the minds of children?
1: I'm not uh, well I can tell you it's quite confusing but let me say there's not anybody watching this program Mike and certainly we've talked about this before every every step as soon as you walk out your door now you see a mask Mm. on the pavement in the parking lot on the ground laying there laying there on the beach on the seafront every single place, people just take them and they chuck them, okay? More than Coke bottles, if you can believe Mm it, more than plastic uh, Coke bottles. So that is the state of play globally right now with masks.
0: It it certainly is. Uh, Now, the question then is what are the health implications? Now, many people focusing on oxygen uh, deprivation, on high levels of CO2 and so on, but the question that I asked uh, three or four months ago now was what about fibers? Uh, What are the implications of inhaling fibers from masks. Uh, are we in fact creating uh, a new asbestosis uh, epidemic? Now, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not saying that's what is going to happen. I'm asking the question. I'm saying that nobody knows the answer to that. There are some papers out there, for example, this one, uh, need for assessing the inhalation of micro brackets, nanoplastic debris shed from masks, respirators and homemade face coverings during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and uh, and then let's uh, have a look at this uh, this is from the University of Edinburgh I think this was 2018 Nanofiber health risk quantified um, and they're absolutely talking about uh, the potential for uh, nanofibers of a particular length the very smallest particles they say don't get stuck in the lungs but they're saying that if they are over a certain length for example the types of length that you would see in a, in a face mask uh, then there's a potential that these get stuck in the lungs they can't be Taken out again, and of course, this is potential for for lung disease. Uh, and here's another one: uh, how damaging is breathing microplastics? This is uh, from the Plastic Soup website, and this is sort of the irony here, because of course we're going to be talking about uh, uh, environmental issues later on, and the fact the COP the COP meeting is happening in the UK, uh, and the UK absolutely uh, uh, trying to push this uh, this climate change environmentalist na- narrative at the moment, and I'm by no means suggesting that we should ignore plastics in the environment, quite the opposite. But we don't uh, deal with plastics in the environment by requiring the use of plastics uh, on people's faces uh, and uh, having those not being disposed of properly. Um, It's really quite staggering. Now this report saying that uh, breathing in microplastics is potentially uh, gonna create an asbestosis-like risk for people. Uh, I would like to see some answers on this. I'm not saying that, that it's guaranteed that that's uh, going to be the cause, uh, that, there, that there's going to be a, a result from this. But we the fact is, nobody knows.
1: You're saying there's, a, there's hypocrisy here. there's a double standard. There's all this talk about the environment, microplastics. This is a well-tread path, Mike, uh, before the COVID crisis. Then all of a sudden, now that they're pushing uh, compulsory masks. Nobody's talking
0: about it. Well, I'm, I'm actually saying more than that I'm saying that uh, they're trying to run these two narratives in parallel and they're not compatible with each other now it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, Apparently I hear on the grapevine that David Attenborough was asked uh, about this situation uh, and you can see his response on screen Nothing, nothing indeed no didn't
1: happen no yeah he had a big rant on channel 4 a lot of people might have seen that earlier this week uh, where he was rounding uh, off about climate change uh, and this being this sort of the number one threat to humanity at the moment that governments are not moving fast enough towards a, a zero carbon uh a situation their policy so we'll get to that a bit later we'll talk about some of those uh, green new deal issues well
0: indeed and it, it, i'm just going to say it's interesting that some of the same Language is being used for both COVID and climate change. Zero carbon, zero COVID. Uh, and there's, we're going to come up to other examples of this later on in the program. The, the same types of narratives, the same types of language being used for both these uh, these policy agendas.
1: Not just the language, the same type of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people. The same type of people you see pushing zero carbon are generally the same people you'll see Pushing zero COVID, mm. so there's a little bit of a pattern there that I think people need to pay very close attention to, and I think it speaks a lot not only about political ideologies uh, but also about the underlying agenda and how these two issues, uh, climate change and COVID, and how they converge mm. and how they are they're very much converging. Look at the World Economic Web, the World Economic Forum's website at Davos. Look, just check out. COVID and climate change and look at what they're saying and you'll see there's an absolute convergence there
0: um, Okay, so um, what's going on in the world of vaccine passports? I mean we talked about this on Wednesday, but uh, I'm interested to, to see what your thoughts are on the subject.
1: Well uh, as, as a lot of people might have seen recently in the news this this topics coming up this hashtag is trending on social media vaccine passports Uh, And lo and behold, what we discovered uh, earlier this week from a Times article, Mike, well, a lot of people, well, if you worked in government, this is no surprise to you at all. And what we've seen, a little bit of a bait and switch, Mike, uh, as it turns out, the NHS COVID tracking app to be used for the new vaccine vaccine. Passport what do you think about that Mike? Isn't uh, that interesting?
0: I think I think that uh, There are lots of people in the market at the moment trying to promote their own businesses and trying to mo- promote their own uh, Agendas to get this to get in on the contracts that are available for this uh, But if we look over for example track and trace the UK government was initially very very keen to use their own technology And be able to gather their own data and they didn't want to use Apple and Google's technology for example they couldn't make it work, so they had to go back in to, to you know cap in hand and ask uh, Apple and Google for for uh, help. Uh, but they are dying to, to make this a, a UK government initiative and not be using private uh, private companies. So I think it's very very likely uh, that this is going to end up being rolled into the NHS uh, app.
1: Well, look, going back to this this article here, Mike, there, what what we point out here uh, is there was a number of uh, denials. This question has been asked directly mm. to ministers, not just one, not just two, but multiple ministers repeatedly. Does the government have any plans for a vaccine passport mm. and at each and every turn along the way? The answer has always been a flat. No, let's uh, look at some of the cabinet ministers uh, what they've said recently when when confronted on this very issue, Mike, just weeks before uh, this latest article and this report from The Times has come out, this admission.
0: So first of all, we've got Gov, and, and the first part of this is from December, and then we've got a clip from, from later on. Yeah, on.
1: from Nadim Zawari, the uh,
0: Vaccines Minister. Yeah, okay, so Gov first.
2: Will there be a sort of COVID passport for those who've had the vaccine? Well, uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I mean, that's, that's not the plan. What... Do I need to have um, a vaccine passport in order to go to the pub? No. Will I need to?
0: No. Um, uh... So that's a pretty definitive no. Twice. Twice. Uh, So then that brings us to the vaccines minister.
1: Yeah, this is Nadim Zawari, the vaccines minister, the impressive vaccines minister, according to uh, his uh, cohort. But uh, listen listen to what he had to say to Sky News recently. This is on, I believe, February 7th, not very long ago.
3: Are we looking at the possibility of creating them here?
2: No, we're not. Uh, we have, as of yesterday, uh, given the first dose to 11.5 million people, and what they get is a card from their NHS with their name on it and, of course, uh, the date they've been, ha- you know, they've been vaccinated with the first dose and then the date for their second dose. Uh, one, we don't know the impact of the vaccines on transmission. Two, it would be discriminatory. And I think the right thing to do is to, you know, make sure that people come forward, be vaccinated because they want to, uh, rather than it being made in some way mandatory uh, through uh, a passport uh, or others. If other countries obviously require uh, some form of of proof, then you can ask your GP because your GP will hold the record. Uh, And of course, uh, that will then be able to be used as your proof that you've had the uh, vaccine. Um, but we are not planning to have a passport in the UK. I just want to repeat that, because I've had a lot of it on my social media. Uh, uh, There are small startup technology companies that that have had some funding from UKRI and Innovate UK who are looking at apps in this area, but we are certainly not looking to introduce it as part of the vaccine deployment programme.
0: Well, that's pretty clear. Um, Now, uh, people in the chat box suggesting that politicians tend to lie. Uh, I, I really? wonder I wonder why anybody would uh, would believe him now uh, is it just me Patrick or does he is he very reminiscent of anton leve? <laughs> well
1: there's a resemb- physical resemblance, resemblance? there yes. the point is this though when you look at those two uh, denials uh, by these two ministers is when they say there is no plans to X, okay or that's not in the plan, as Gove said many times. That means that they are planning to do it. And if they're (laughs) planning to do it, it means they're intending to do it. So uh, at at what point have we not learned the the, the lesson lesson. after all of these years that ministers, politicians, they do lie and they do obfuscate and they do this daily in fact that is probably one of the only professional requirements in modern politics is that you can and you will and you do lie repeatedly all the time Mm. that's basically what they do they never give their hand away until the agenda is already on the tracks and moving forward and hence this is why there's so much aggression with regards to censorship i mean if you talked about vaccine passports like 12 months ago when people were talking about it you're being accused of being a conspiracy theorist.
0: That that is true, and that that was or accusation was thrown at us for doing exactly that.
1: Spreading fear, and now look, it's policy. So wake up, people. Okay, mm-hmm. this this is happening. This is absolutely happening. Now let's let's look at how to operationalize this particular policy. Uh, this is a story uh, that's also come out this week. Uh, this is up at Twenty First Century Wire. Now. Where We are, this is our opinion at 21st Century Wire, the UK and Greece uh, have colluded to push this new vaccine passport on holiday travelers. Look at the situation here, Mike. You have a demand, okay? You have a supply issue, okay? What is in supply? What is in short supply right now? It's freedom, okay? So freedom is in short supply. And so you have a demand. Mm-hmm. What is the demand? For people to want to travel, for people to want to go on vacation to go to other countries. So you have governments are controlling, absolutely controlling, the uh, supply and the demand in this equation, mm-hmm. okay? The supply is freedom and your rights, or what they call privileges, mm-hmm. and the demand is the demand to you know go on holiday to travel Well,
0: there's a, the demand to go on holiday to travel from individuals there's a demand from the airlines and the and the hospitality industry that Correct. people are allowed to travel um, and so what they're doing is is building a situation where there is going to be people are going to be actually saying to the government at this point here saying well we've got no plans the government people are going to be saying well why have you no plans we demand you give us vaccine passports
1: right so there's a lot of pressure right now yes. political pressure social pressure economic mm. pressure for a quote solution okay they've created the problem mm. the reaction is obvious and the solution well they've been working on the solution uh, despite the denials of Michael gove and the uh, impressive vaccine minister mm. Nadine uh, Zawari so let's go back and look at this story here uh, so this is what's happening now uh, we'll, we'll break down uh, some of the details here the mechanism that's going to make this work vis-a-vis the European Union okay this is a three-way uh, uh, sort of deal this is a mm-hmm. three-way <laughs> a con is as, as you might call a, a short con that's being played on the public let's listen to the tourism minister from Greece uh, he spoke to ITV uh, just a couple of days ago and he basically laid this out very casually uh, but yes he has been working hand in hand they've been talking to uh, the UK government behind the scenes and I, and I'm, I might add Mike there at no point has there been any public consultation any legal or judicial review on this policy they're literally trying to push the policy by fiat hmm. by administrative fiat by having people uh, various countries sign up to it and then all the, and then basically roll it out and then wait for the challenges afterwards. Mm. Uh, where is the democracy, where is the consultation, any of this? Long gone. So let, let, let's listen to the Greece uh, tourism minister here uh, talking to
3: ITV. We feel that the vaccination programs are a game changer uh, together with uh, the, the abundance of tests, rapid tests and PCR tests. Um, so uh, we feel that... Um, uh, Vaccination means that someone with the required certificate that will be issued by the government um, means that you do not need to have a negative test before you fly like the current requirements stipulate. Uh, But it doesn't mean that only vaccinated people can travel. Uh, We still have the option of a negative test uh, for anyone who's not yet uh, in the vaccination program. Well, we have Um, from the start, from the design of our uh, our vaccination program, which was very digital in terms of the appointment making and everything, we would actually proactively send SMS messages to our citizens with a pre-booked appointment. Um, So you can imagine that all this is very, very digital in nature. And we have um, created uh, vaccination certificates. Uh, Actually, I have one uh, with me. Uh, which uh, show that uh, someone is uh, vaccinated and it has three digital modes of uh, verification. It has a QR code, it has a signature, and it has a URL which uh, you can verify. So this can all be done automatically. Um, I'm sure the UK, the discussions, as I said, they're still ongoing and uh, you know there's still some way to go. Um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, the UK has uh, something equivalent uh, to to be able to automate as much as possible of the process. But if uh, paper is also part of the process, it will be part of the process. So we can change that. I mean,
0: this is really important, Patrick, because what is being built here is a global digital identity program scheme uh, Using, system.
1: using the, the virus, using the pandemic as the pretext. Yes. On 100% clearly.
0: Yes. Uh, and uh, you know, most of the discussion of this is is around uh, the idea that that it can't be left in the hands of of one organisation to manage this global digital identity because one organisation isn't going to be big enough to cope with the demand. So there, there are going to have to be frameworks uh, established uh, and uh, corporations right around the world uh, using those those frameworks. It's 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 a, a real technocratic. Infrastructure that's being built.
1: Yeah, a global, ubiquitous mm. infrastructure. Notice a couple of things he said that's really important. He said that, uh, oh, don't worry, We you know, if you don't have a vaccine passport, it's okay. It's okay. That's the way ITV wrote their headline, by the way. Mm. Very deceptive, mm-hmm. saying Gre- you you don't need a, a vaccine passport to go to Greece. Says tourism minister, I wish we could flash the headline up, but you can go online and mm-hmm. find it. Uh, and so, but but what they omit in that headline, Mike, when you read the fine print, and you listen to the other half of the interview here, mm-hmm. he's saying, or, or you can have a negative COVID test. Mm-hmm. And he said, we'll be using the PCR test as well, maybe a bunch of tests, who knows what they're going to use. So totally unstandardized, using the absolutely diabolical PCR test, the most inaccurate, uh a diagnostic tool you could possibly use uh and and so so this idea that you ha- either have to test negative with a dodgy test okay or you have to have a vaccine passport to enter the country mm-hmm. i mean is there anything in international law that prohibits the restriction of free movement amongst free countries uh as as a right uh i, I do believe that some of these things i you know Uh, having to consent or uh, voluntarily going to go into a medical procedure it's a choice to have a medical procedure be it a vaccine or sticking a swab right up your nasal cavity Mm. okay in order to test you for something and meanwhile has nothing to do with your whether you're healthy or not Mm. you could be perfectly healthy could have never gotten sick and you're in your prime uh, you're looking after yourself but no You will not be allowed to enter certain countries unless you have this vaccine passport or you test negative. And how long, Mike? until the negative COVID test just becomes auxiliary and really everybody is going to be required to have this, quote, immunity passport or health passport or vaccine passport, whatever you want to call it.
0: The only reason that they are at this point uh, stepping back from requiring vaccines only, is because the vaccine programme, particularly in the EU, hasn't been rolled out widely enough. We're going to be coming on to that a little bit later. As soon as that vaccine programme is, is, is universal and everybody mm-hmm. has the opportunity, uh, and it then becomes a choice whether you ha- have it or not, uh, then they'll remove the option, I believe, for the test.
1: We'll go back to the article here. Let's look at the, the bottleneck they've created. Well, what is it done? Here Here you go, Mike. Now, it's pres- pressuring Brussels to move quicker on the issue and thus bypass due process and legal considerations on the issue of vaccine passports. You see what they've done here, created this time limit where it, we're coming towards spring. People are all booking their holidays now. Look at the, the, the headlines in the papers. Uh, uh, record holiday bookings, you know, for the summer. And so everybody wants to know. They need certainty in order to book their holidays. So mm-hmm. they've created a problem-reaction-solution situation mm-hmm. almost with a time limit on it, and they're pushing. The, the, the UK and Greece effectively are pressuring the EU to move quicker on the issue. So this is global Britain, bilateral Britain, mm-hmm. doing a bilateral deal with Greece. you think Greece had learned after the 2008 financial crisis to stay uh, away from us. Not to capitulate to... <laughs> Uh, external pressures, but it, mm-hmm. does, it seems like they haven't learned their lesson. Uh, so Greece is just a very easy target in that sense. But what is, where's the proof on this? Well, it's right here. Here's the Financial Times. Greece presses EU to move more quickly on vaccine passports. That's just from yesterday or the day before. Within the last couple of days, this story. Mm-hmm. So you can see the mechanism here you can see the mechanism this is multiple countries in this case uh, the UK and Greece and there's a few other countries as well Mm -hmm. that are pushing this and so they're normalizing the policy and as soon as they get Brussels to move uh, with them on this or to to capitulate to the public pressure because Spain needs the tourism dollars right Mm -hmm. Greece needs the tourism dollars right who else needs them Uh, Italy needs them as well everybody's desperate for tourism uh, euros and dollars and pounds over the summer period. And so they need to move fast. So <laughs> everything's about speed and centralization of policy. Mike, this is how we got into this mess with COVID. And now they're compounding the problems by adding all of these new dictatorial draconian policies, because we can't wait. Mm. We can't wait. So everything's about, there's no alternative. There is no alternative. And we can't wait. We must act together now as one like a rapid reaction response mechanism.
0: Yes. So what's Blair been up to then? Well, behind every bad
1: policy, Mike, behind every bad policy, you'll normally see this ghoul here. There he is. And, uh, you know, we still have to suffer this man. And so look at vaccine passports. Who's pushing this? Who's directing? Who's coordinating this all along? It has been Tony Blair. Okay, it is Blair. There we go, from, from January. And I, this is just one of many from the Tony Blair Institute here. Tony Blair calls on Boris Johnson to lead the drive for global vaccine mm. passports. The former prime minister has called current border restrictions disjointed and urged the UK to put a global travel pass on the G7 agenda to use its uh, rotating presidency position Uh, on the upcoming G7 summit, use that special position, this great opportunity, so here we go. Britain is in the cat seat going into the G7, all this pressure for a vaccine passport. Tony Blair is architecting it Mm -hmm. from behind the scenes, making sure that uh, the Labor Party and Keir Starmer are like good little boys there uh, in the front row, ready to do whatever the teacher says on this issue and so this has already been decided this policy is so well formulated right now and the press are acting like oh it's a surprise we don't know if we're gonna do it Gove said he has no plans to do it and then he turns around in the times this week and Mm -hmm. as we showed you earlier we find out that actually they are very much working on it he's reviewing it for Boris Johnson that's very generous of him he said i've tasked michael gove to review the issue of vaccine passports we're we're reviewing it no they're absolutely planning on rolling it out we've showed you just a a smidgen of the evidence here Mm. if you really want to go dig into this you'll see there's a waterfall of of evidence that this is already in motion it's been on the books for a long time and they're using covid they're using the vaccines they're using your summer holiday in order to ram it down your throats literally
0: Okay, well, look, let's move on to uh, the uh, yellow card system from the MHRA and the adverse reactions that are coming out of uh, this. Uh, So, this is uh, the latest uh, release from the MHRA on the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. Uh, We're seeing a wide, wide range of uh, adverse reactions as expected, Uh, cardiac arrests. Uh, cardiorespiratory arrests, some deaths as a result of that. Uh, They do manage to get their mouths correct after the first effort on this. Um, So we now know that there uh, were 90 total deaths just defined as death without any other uh, explanation, uh, which resulted in 90 fatalities. So at least they got the numbers right this time uh, in, in the sense that they tally, not necessarily that they're the right actual numbers. So for uh, bio, for the Pfizer BioNTech, uh, the MHRA is claiming that there have been 77,207 adverse reactions recorded so far uh, from uh, 26,823 reports. Uh, and 197 fatalities. Now, that number seems very, very low to most people, uh, bearing in mind that there have been several million uh, vaccines rolled out. But of course, um, vaccines are very special because whereas with COVID, if you die, uh, if you're a COVID statistic, a COVID death statistic, and you have underlying comorbidities, uh, then those are ignored for the purposes of COVID. Uh, so you're a COVID,
1: you, you you're died because of COVID. Not
0: because of a comorbidity, but with respect to the vaccine, um, you die from the comorbidity and not the vaccine. Right. So it gets a special status. So,
1: so they blame COVID, but don't blame the vaccine right. on the death. Uh, and this is the same, are these the same vaccines they want you look at? They want loaded into your vaccine passport, Mike. Yes, yes. The very, indeed, yes. The very same ones. This is interesting, isn't so, uh,
0: it? So let's have a look at uh, the AstraZeneca one. And actually, interestingly enough, uh, AstraZeneca seems to have caused uh, quite a bit of COVID. Um, so 108 uh, uh, COVID infections caused by the vaccine, according to the yellow card scheme, 10 deaths there. Uh, they also have deaths and sudden deaths with no other explanation Um, and in this case, the 111 deaths. So actually the uh, AstraZeneca uh, jab, which was behind in the first week of reports, now that we're in the third week is ahead. So 205 total fatalities from 114,625 adverse uh, events. So, but let's try to put a little bit of context on this, because if we look at the latest excess mortality figures from the uh, Office for National Statistics, and we look at what's been going on in care homes. Um, If you look on the right-hand side of that care home driver, let's just uh, zoom in a little bit on this. Look at the right-hand side of that care home, uh, the the excess mortality from care homes there, and you see that pretty much as soon as the uh, vaccine programme, the vaccine rollout in care homes was finished, uh, the excess mortality seems to have fallen again. It's all very coincidental. We can't say that the, the cause of the excess mortality was... The vaccines, because we don't know, uh, but it's certainly very coincidental that the uh, excess mortality in care homes uh, rose sharply as soon as the vaccine rollout began, and seems to have fallen sharply again as soon as the va- as soon as the uh, vaccine rollout was complete. And we know that it was complete because carehome.co.uk. Uh, has told us that it was. This was uh, on the twenty seventh of January, saying ninety five percent of care homes in England have had all residents vaccinated, vaccinated already. So, uh, so that's that's quite interesting. Well, I thought.
1: There, there's more, multiple variables going on here, so this would require a little more uh, investigation. But I'm certainly this is uh, a good uh, entry point uh, into sort of really looking at those statistics and and looking at the outcome of the uh, mass vaccination program on the elderly
0: well that's true patrick but but actually because we're not really doing any proper investigation of what actually caused the deaths of uh, people in care homes we're not doing any kind of post-mortem same as with people that are dying in in hospitals we're not doing any sort of post-mortem we're simply relying on the pcr test to tell us whether that person was COVID positive or not so we can, we're actually never going to get to the, the truth about how these people died. We can only ask questions and, and say that really there should be an inquiry here, um, but that inquiry hasn't happened. There's no data being gathered. And so it's going to be very very difficult at the end of the day to say exactly what happened
1: and this is a big problem in the united states with we have the the veers reporting system yes. for adverse reactions for vaccines the problem with the Veers system as well is that not all medical professionals are compelled to report everything mm-hmm. into that system so uh, and this has been uh, uh, detailed in great uh, job by uh, children's health defense mm-hmm. robert f kennedy's website basically saying how the policy of reporting has changed drastically over the years. In fact, it's very underreported. So adverse reactions and deaths, like you said, there needs to be a proper investigation, proper postmortem. That's not happening. So the numbers that we're seeing reported could possibly only be a fraction of the real numbers. And that should really... Uh, uh, be of great concern to people I think. It should be. It should be a great concern to the media, to public health officials, but nobody wants to know. Anything to do with vaccines nobody wants to know. It's like move along, nothing to see here.
0: Uh, this is totally correct. Now, uh, of course, if we go back to this uh, excess mortality graph from, uh, from this Office for National Statistics, and of course this, this is uh, based on, on where the death happened um, there is one area where we can uh, say that there's something is identifiable, and that is the number of people that are dying in their own homes. Uh, and it's quite interesting to me, Patrick, that whereas uh, in care homes, in hospitals, in other settings, uh, we saw a reduction in the, the excess mortality to the point where there was, it was mortality, the overall mortality was falling below the five-year average during the summer months in 2020, It has never fallen below the five-year average in in private homes. Uh, And this is the effect of lockdown. This is a combination of people not getting proper hospital treatment. Their cancer treatment's been stopped. They're having strokes and heart attacks. They're not going to hospital quickly enough. Uh, This is also the effect of suicide. Uh, of course we don't know how many suicides are in among that excess mortality because uh, that isn't being or it's, it isn't being gathered properly or at least the uh, inquiries aren't happening fast enough that, that we can actually get some useful statistics from this so this graph here this issue has never been addressed by the mainstream press it hasn't been addressed by the fact checkers either uh, let's see them address this let's see the answer for why we're having this constant excess mortality from the beginning of the pandemic right until uh, the present day, with no reduction for the summer months, as we saw in other settings.
1: At home, excess mortality as well, yes. I mean, that's an obvious uh, gaping uh, hole there in the narrative that needs to be uh, further investigated.
0: Yes. Now, uh, of course, the issue of vaccine hesitancy is uh, one that's in the press regularly uh, in the UK. uh, And it's largely being put at the door of the uh, black and ethnic minority uh, groups, uh, because they're particularly hesitant, apparently. But it's not quite the same in Europe. Um, here's just one example. Uh, this is Belgium. Uh, and Belgium has a, a, an amazing uh, vaccination centre. It can deal with 5,000 people a day. Uh, and, well, they're not really getting anybody through. They've and got
1: the manufacturing facilities there as well for Pfizer, don't they? They
0: do. And yeah. and so we've got uh, this headline from your news, Belgium's slow rollout. Absurd with so many vaccines made in the country um, It is an incredible situation that that uh, this is a that I mean this is a real photograph uh, they <laughs> they've got all the chairs set out for people to be socially distanced and nobody in them
1: at Brussels Airport Mike uh, Brussels International Airport the,
0: the BBC. Yes, the BBC was talking about this yesterday on the lunchtime uh, news program uh, and They were saying or the the, the uh, their commentator from Brussels was saying that uh, 5,000 people per day is what the, the centre can do. They're lucky if they get two or 300 people through. So there's no particular explanation for why that is. But I think it's also interesting, Patrick, that uh, uh, I just saw before we came onto the programme that uh, only about 30% of the people that are working in care homes in the UK are taking up the opportunity to get the vaccine yeah. as well. Uh, so this issue this sales pitch that's going on over vaccines doesn't seem to be getting traction.
1: It's because a lot of it's not a sales pitch. It's, they're literally pushing it very aggressively. I mean, like really, I mean, you talk about corporate drug pushers yes uh, this is what Big Pharma is doing and I might add I was speaking to someone in France uh, this week and they said there w- a lot of people weren't talking about wanting to get this vaccine but as soon as the press started repeating these stories about shortages for weeks all of a sudden uh, you heard more people saying oh I want to get one demand yeah so they created artificial scarcity through the media through reporting and and again the, the government is totally uh, in control of Mm. that process as we said earlier Mm. they control supply and demand of everything uh, along with these corporations who they're working very very tightly and closely with yes and so they can alter public opinion just by creating these situations
0: Uh, now uh, earlier in the week and last week we were talking about this issue of no job no job Um, would people be required mandated to get a vaccine if they wanted to keep their jobs uh, we made the point that uh, certainly uh, that Chris Whitty was uh, aiming or suggesting that that would be the case for healthcare workers, uh, but in fact to receive healthcare now it's becoming a requirement it seems because more and more anecdotal evidence. Here's just one tweet. Uh, from Andy Richards saying my wife needs to have an operation on her spine and she's been told she has to have a vaccine and two negative tests. She has underlying conditions but was originally told she shouldn't have the vaccine uh, as once she had a bad reaction to the swine flu jab. Uh, And this certainly was the case that that, uh, there was a a statement early uh, as the uh, vaccines were being rolled out initially that if people had uh, had bad reactions to previous vaccines then they should be very, very careful about uh, having these ones. Um, and uh, so this is now a requirement to receive medical treatment uh, I think that is potentially a much bigger ethical question than, than jobs actually
1: well so, so you have a potential of, of this and we'll just lay this out Mike. the last thing I'll say here on this issue of vaccines and vaccine passports so restricting your access to venues pubs restaurants whatnot could be a public transport hubs who knows how far would to go education Will you get access to university? Will you be able to go on campus? Will children be able to go to school? Of course, we talked about international travel, but let's take that a step further. Supermarkets to buy food. Will you be allowed entry into Sainsbury's, for instance? They're particularly militant on their mask policies, okay? But, but let's take it further. Will you be allowed access to health care?
0: Well, the answer is we've just seen the answer that that is increasingly the case more and more reports of that we will not be allowed access to health care
1: look at the paradox of that issue right there and then ask yourself a question what exactly are we doing here yes what exactly are we doing
0: okay if you like what the uk column does and you would like to support us then please join us uh, you can do so at ukcolumn.org forward slash community uh, and that would be very much appreciated Uh, And uh, also, please share our material on the various platforms uh, if you can.
1: And some alternative video platforms there, Mike. Um, They're very interesting. You've got BitChute, uh, but you've also got uh, Odyssey as well. Yes. Uh, So they're really interesting. There's some great material on some of these other video sharing platforms. So we do encourage people to go explore uh, not just the UK column, but there's other great content on there as well. For sure. So it's really exciting to see uh, some of these other video sharing platforms coming into their own.
0: Yes. Okay. Uh, BBC, Patrick, uh, let's have a look at, uh, at this. COVID, why can't we unlock more quickly?
1: Yes. Uh, we don't often go to the BBC, Mike, uh, for, for wisdom and news and things like this. And I accidentally pulled this article up. And uh, normally I have a reaction, a sort of Something An akin, adverse reaction. Something akin to nausea yeah. when I see their their work. And but I just went a little further. I was so intrigued, Mike, by the headline that I, I went down further. So this just give you a little extrapolate, uh, a little masterclass here on BBC propaganda, because it's just reaching levels that nobody's ever seen before. So here's the headline here: COVID. Why can't we unlock more quickly? This is a question on everybody's mind, isn't it? And this is by Nick Triggle the health uh correspondent there nick triggle and as you can see there's hipsters there with an attractive blonde there over a pint of beer so uh there's wonder- not a very
0: realistic picture it has uh, to be said
1: well yeah it could it could be in, in portobello or something like that i'm sure or down in uh in in, in bermondsey in london but uh, how soon can we get back to normal? How, how, can we, how soon can we have these scenes where you can just sit together with people and, and have a pint? That's the question. Let's look at what the BBC has to say, uh, the wisdom uh, behind the BBC on this. And this is what we find straight off the bat in this article by Mr. Triggle. And uh, there can be no more steps backwards. Oh, we heard Boris Johnson saying this as well, mm-hmm. didn't we? That uh, all these steps must be irreversible, right? Well, here we go. A key mantra uh, in the lead up to the announcement is that each step forward must be irreversible. There must be no steps back. This is the BBC talking, Mike, okay? What exactly would you call this? Because it's not news, it's not analysis. What exactly is this? Propaganda. That's right, this is propaganda. Uh We just thought we'd put that right up front. (laughs) But that's not all, they keep going. Let's look at what else is here. This is a beauty. Uh, but despite, listen to this, talk about double speak. Despite falling infection rates, the number of new daily cases still remains relatively high. So in one sentence, you have falling infection rates, but raising cases. Isn't this amazing, Mike? Is this not designed to just absolutely bamboozle the reader and leave them in a paralytic state of shock, okay, <laughs> compared to the summer and early autumn? Uh, and this, so it is still a very delicate position. So they're saying that w- you should expect the same level of cases in the, in the winter as you do the summer. This is what the BBC, so they're ignoring seasonality as a variable, that's something Neil Ferguson did in his great lockdown computer modeling, which we'll show uh, in a little bit. But uh, he, this is the graph they threw out here, look at this, Mike. So they're saying that you know all seasons are equal, with regards to seasonal respiratory virus. So this is the sort of tripe that the BBC is putting out even today. Uh, And you look at this with absolute wonder how manipulative uh, this media outlet is on COVID here. So clearly this is the health correspondent who is in charge of proofreading his reports. We don't know, but we'll go a little bit further. What else does uh, Mr. Triggle have to say? Well, he's thrown up this graph, Mike. This is quite an interesting graph. Under 70s, Make up a small proportion of those who have died with, being the operative word, with COVID-19, but about half of those admitted to hospital. So look, he's shown this disparity here, Mike, that uh, young people aren't dying of COVID, but they're filling up the hospital beds with COVID, with COVID. So what are we talking about or here? Or are
0: they filling up the hospital beds with all, all kinds of other problems, but a PCR test has said that at some point they may have come into contact with the virus. Is that what's going on?
1: Bingo. You win the prize, Mike. But unfortunately, you're not playing at the BBC. So uh, again, the readers are none the wiser. Let's move on here. Uh, we're trying to figure out why lockdown should be done slower. Schools could drive up infection rates. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it, Mike? schools could drive up infection rates. But then you read it and it says, schools are not considered a significant driver of infection. And that's in one sentence right there. So cases still fell in November when England was in lockdown, but schools remained opened. So classic doublespeak, again, this this article is literally littered with all of these contradictory statements, one after another. And this is the head health honcho at the BBC, Mr. Uh, Treacle. So infections plus vaccines equals ideal breeding ground for mutations. So, ah, look, Mike, they're, they're drifting it out, aren't they? Mm. Here, let's take a look at the logic and the science here at the BBC, mutations are to be expected. Growing levels of immunity, he's talking about from vaccines, from the further rollout of the vaccine will favor variants that can sneak past the vaccine. Oh, they're sneaky. So COVID is able to sneak past the vaccine, according to the uh, health czar at the BBC, Mr. Treacle, okay? So there we go. So, But what is he, what are they really saying there, Mike? They're really saying that... Uh, almost admitting that you might expect, you might expect more uh, uh, sicknesses uh, as a result of the vaccine.
0: Ah, well, they're certainly saying that there's going to be new, va- new variants, and of course new variants are the gift to keep on giving because they allow all kinds of uh, uh, policy decisions to be made.
1: Sure, Especially vaccine-derived variants, and that's not a conspiracy theory. Uh, just go look up, do a Google search if you're at home right now. Type in, how about this, type in WHO africa polio vaccines vaccine derived virus people are dying in africa because of the vaccine derived polio virus well not just in africa this has happened in india i think in pakistan too number of african countries and so that's just the polio vaccine i think you can probably find some other examples of this uh as well so again Uh, This is very interesting. We're just trying to help you read between the lines with regards to propaganda. So where does this naturally lead logically? Well, let's look at Nature Magazine. This is the flip side of this argument here. Uh, The coronavirus is here to stay, and here's what that means. This is Nature Magazine here, and this is what they're saying. And they're saying that uh, if other regions aided by vaccines aimed for a similar zero-COVID strategy, uh, then could the world hope to rid itself of the virus. They're talking about the idea of zero COVID, Mike, Mm. okay? And here's what they're saying, nature. It's a beautiful dream, but most scientists think it's improbable. Really, I think impossible is probably a better word uh, for this. So this is Nature magazine, preeminent science journal here, basically saying, along with a lot of other people, Mike, that zero COVID is a pipe dream. But yet governments are talking about it like it's going to be policy. Australia is attempting this. Uh, New Zealand um, and really extremist uh, leadership in in these countries, the Antipodean countries, uh, pursuing a zero COVID policy. Meanwhile, the scientists are saying, no, it's impossible. What are you doing? You gotta, well, some
0: it, scientists are the scientists that are associated with Sage and Sage-like organizations seem to be pushing. Uh, so the usual suspects yeah, seem it, to be pushing zero COVID zero. The
1: Sage uh, lot, and they're not all they're not all very well qualified, as as we'll we'll show you later. in a minute later.
0: Yes, but uh, look, th- thanks to for Hugo Talks for tipping us off to this one. But uh, this is uh, the independent scientific Advocacy group in Ireland. Uh, a better way forward toward elimination of COVID-19 and they've got a nice little badge there that you can put on your website Uh, we can be zero Uh, so it's all about COVID zero
1: yeah zero zero rights zero liberties zero life Uh, yes zero work zero economy Zero health.
0: That's what it means. Uh, so the independent scientific advisory group, or sorry, advocacy group uh, in Ireland is. They call themselves a multidisciplinary group of scientists, academics, and researchers who've come together to advocate for SARS-CoV-2 elimination strategy for the Ireland island of Ireland. Uh, and uh, well, anyway, uh, uh, Hugo Talks was was highlighting this article from uh, an Irish website called GRIPT. That's G-R-I-P-T. Uh, the headline is Look for Ways to Increase Insecurity, Anxiety, and Uncertainty. Uh, zero COVID document. So it looks like uh, the policy of the SPY-B group, the SPY-B subgroup of SAGE in the UK, is creeping across uh, mm-hmm. into other countries.
1: Look at this graphic. This is a COVID on an iron ball and chain shattering the back of someone's head. Yes, That's not a pleasant
0: image. So uh, according to Gript, uh, the... the Uh, independent scientific advisory group were instructed to review and internalize instructions to look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety, and uncertainty, and to go after people and not institutions because people hurt faster than institutions.
1: Can you repeat that,
0: please? Uh, They were instructed to review and internalize instructions to look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety and uncertainty and to go after people and not institutions because people hurt faster than institutions. So that's absolutely clear. This is absolute, uh, the use of applied psychology to increase the levels of fear in people in order to pursue uh, this zero COVID Agenda.
1: And to go after individuals who yes. are dissenting? Is that what they're saying?
0: Uh, no, just, or, just or, to make sure that individuals in general are, are their, their anxiety is raised, their fear is raised, because that way they are susceptible to the message. Um, and uh, so uh, th- I'll just quote a little bit more here. The note reminded ISAG members of the importance of ridicule as man's most powerful weapon and that the threat of a thing is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. Uh, ISAC members, many of whom are regular guests in Irish media, were told that they could count on imagination and dream up as many, uh, uh, many more consequences than they themselves uh, as the real, uh, sorry, as the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. So that's a bit of a repeat. But nonetheless, they were also promoting, uh, guess what, Sololinsky's Rules for Radicals. So this is from their uh, internal chat box, uh, this particular screen grab. Uh, and they were all being reminded, I know the text is very small there, but it's just because it is a a screenshot from the uh, actual chat, the the list of 13 rules for radicals that uh, Saul Alinsky has published in his book uh, being promoted, uh, and these types of techniques being used to drive fear in the Irish uh, community.
1: How to be a disruptive change agent. Yes. So this is weaponized. Uh, basically, activism. This, this is totally yes. disruptive politics. Yes, that's just makes every should make everybody feel uh, really uh, warm and fuzzy at w- home.
0: Well, but the point is, once we know that they're doing this stuff, uh, then we know what to look out for, mm. and uh, it basically pulls uh, pulls its uh, claws, as it were.
1: So they're playing dirty, basically. They're very much so. Uh, I didn't realize uh, government did that, Mike. That's the absolutely shocking. Uh,
0: So, uh, But of course, uh, one of the faces of this whole policy is the wonderful Neil Ferguson.
1: Well, we have to ask ourselves, how did we get here to to begin with? And let's look at some of these experts. Well, this is uh, the grand poobah himself, uh, Dr. Lockdown Neil Ferguson from Imperial College fame, uh, one of Boris Johnson's most consequential advisors do you think that's a fair statement could be one of the most consequential science advisors in modern history okay this is the guy right here but this is what we found out recently imperial folly neil ferguson has no qualification in biological sciences now that might come as a shock to some people maybe not from others uh, looking at his work uh, but uh, this, was, this was really serialized by uh, uh, a piece that was originally in Lockdown Skeptics okay, by, I believe, Derek Winton. And this is what they found. In an interview uh, on the BBC's Life Science, Ferguson conceded to not having an A-level in biology. Now, that might be a little bit shocking, wouldn't it? Well, it gets a little bit more interesting. As far as publicly available information is accurate, he appears to have no formal training in computer modeling... This is the thing that he's most famous for, medicine, of course not, and epidemiology either. He's listed, Mike, on Imperial College's website as leading epidemiologists uh, in in the UK, okay? One of the country's leading epidemiologists. Constantly, he's being referred to as a top epidemiologist, but yet he has no formal education or training in epidemiology whatsoever. I don't even think in biostatistics either, Mm. so not great. So the computer model which Ferguson used to invent the outlandish death predictions was not even fit for purpose. Among other problems, it completely left out seasonality uh, as a variable in projecting the progress of the pandemic. Now you'd think if somebody with some biological sciences background would have known to put seasonality in as a variable in their computer model so as not to have overblown death counts like 500,000 deaths or something like this. Uh, but of course, Neil Ferguson left that out of his model, which shows a level of incompetency. So incompetent, incapable, and unqualified. That is the most consequential science advisor to any government in modern history, that man, Neil Ferguson. So that—that that is the pandemic in a nutshell.
0: Uh, well, let's just remind ourselves of what lockdown skeptics, I mean, we reported this at the time. Lockdown skeptics uh, ran a code review of uh, Ferguson's model. Uh, and. Uh, So uh, it isn't the code Ferguson ran to produce his most famous uh, report nine is what they say. This was from May, uh, 2020. Uh, What's been released on GitHub is a heavily modified derivative of it having been upgraded for over a month by a team from Microsoft and others. So, just to remind yourselves, Microsoft and others had to take his code. They had to spend a month working on it to get it into a state that was fit for public release. Sanitize it. Absolutely sanitize it. Uh, The revised code base is split into multiple files for legibility and written in C++ where the original program was written a single 15,000 line file that have been worked on for a decade uh, and they're making the point this is bad practice. Uh, It goes on to say that uh, uh, due to bugs, the code can produce very different results given identical inputs. Uh, They routinely act as if this is unimportant. Uh, And then I think the last paragraph is particularly uh, of note here. On a personal level, the author says, I'd go further and suggest that all academic epidemiology be defunded. This sort of work is best done by the insurance sector. Insurers employ modelers and data scientists, but also employ managers whose job is to decide whether a model is accurate enough for real-world usage and professional software engineers to ensure model software is properly tested, understandable, and so on. Academic efforts don't have these people and the results speak for themselves. I think that's absolutely... uh, Valid criticism. So this is an interesting point, isn't it, Mike?
1: That uh, you know, in, in the insurance sector, they can't afford to get it wrong, can they? In terms of actuaries, I mean, if they do, they're literally out of business. Yes. So there is there's a more rigorous and robust process in auditing things like modeling and predictive modeling uh, in the private sector. In the insurance sector specifically, uh, one of the things that they excel at. And in in the world of academia, you're saying, well, it seems, Mike, that there's none. No, there's none. There's none. So there's no incentive or no uh, pressure to make it more robust, uh, to sort of plug all of the uh, bugs and problems with it. They're literally just making it up as they go along. It looks impressive. Certainly the results were enough to really, really impress uh, Boris Johnson and his ministers so much so that they decided to go, for Wuhan uh, on the country and the rest is history yes but look we have traced it back we've shown you who this quote expert is we've shown you his computer modeling and what's behind it and guess what it's a complete catastrophe okay it's a total Tobacco, and and is he still on Sages committee? Uh,
0: I'm not sure whether he's back or not. Of course, he Uh, lost his job because he was busy meeting and dallying with his girlfriend. I think uh, he's back. Yes, I think reports
1: reports recently have indicated that he is back Mm. in the fold. Uh, So,
0: (sighs) yes. Well, look, uh, let's move on then. And uh, I just wanted to this is from December actually, but I wanted to bring it up because the question of PCR testing uh, and the validity of PCR testing, which is driven everything that we've seen, including the numbers of deaths attributed to COVID-19. And this is from Science Magazine. The coronavirus may sometimes slip its genetic material into human chromosomes, uh, but what does this mean? Um, And uh, people they're they're saying that basically the people who have recovered from COVID-19 sometimes later test positive for SARS-CoV-2, suggesting their immune systems could not ward off a second attack of the coronavirus or that they had a lingering infection. But a study now hints at a different explanation in which the virus hides in an unexpected place. Uh, The work uh, only reported uh, in preprint suggests the pandemic pathogen takes a page from other retroviruses, and integrates its genetic code, but importantly, just parts of it into people's chromosomes. Uh, and of course, that would then be detectable uh, subsequently. And in fact, uh, if it was uh, integrated into people's chromosomes, that would mean potentially someone was testing positive uh, for SARS CoV 2 in perpetuity. Uh, so, forever. Yes, so you would never be able to get uh, uh, into Greece because uh, you would never be able to get a negative. Uh, test result and perhaps you wouldn't be able to get medical treatment because you wouldn't be able to get a negative test result so it's quite important to understand this and what's quite interesting is that this really doesn't seem to have been taken up by anybody uh, since then uh, but putting this back on screen uh, they quote uh, this man David Baltimore from the California Institute of Technology he's a he's won a Nobel Prize if I remember correctly uh, and he has said uh, because uh, it is all pieces of the coronal viral genome. It can't lead to infectious RNA or DNA, and therefore it's probably biologically a dead end. So he's making it clear that there's no possibility of infection if this uh, mRNA, if these mRNA strands from from uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus end up in your uh,
1: within your DNA. From the vaccine you're talking no, no, about? No, no, no. This just is from, naturally. This is naturally. Right. Yes. Okay.
0: Yes. Uh, and so, uh, if anybody's interested in reading the paper and would like to. Uh, you know, distribute this a little bit because I think questions need to be asked here. Uh, the title is uh, SARS-CoV-2 RNA reverse transcribed and integrated into the human genome. Uh, it's uh, they're all U.S. based uh, uh, scientists, as far as I know, um, and uh, it's it's a very interesting thing. So uh, it. Might raise some further questions among some people of, that are paying attention. I'm not going to say any more than that at this point.
1: But but the bottom line with the PCR test is that the biggest misconception out in the public, if you polled 100 people, uh, probably like 80 or 90 of them will say that uh, I thought I thought that the PCR test had a copy of the uh, novel coronavirus, the virus, and that they're matching that to the virus. Uh, in your blood or in your nasal swab or whatever and that when it gets a perfect match then you're a positive. Most people think that's how the test works. No. But that's not how the test works. No. that the test doesn't have a full copy of the virus. It has a few genetic sequences, what markers you might call them, Mm -hmm. uh, RNA markers, and and then it expands through the PCR uh, transcription method to blow up the number of uh, uh, DNA molecules until uh, it has a match, okay? Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't mean it's got the full virus. So in other words, some of those, some of those genetic uh, strands, Mike, are actually in your body normally. That's it, true too. It, they're in lots of your cells. So it's not, they're not uh, unique to the quote novel coronavirus. This is on the testing end, and think about that. If the testing is that inaccurate, and by the way, the inventor of the test, Kerry Mullis, Nobel laureate himself, said that my test, the PCR, should never be used as a diagnostic, and yet what have we done since day one?
0: Used it as a diagnostic. Used it
1: as a diagnostic. I rest my case, Your Honor.
0: Yeah, okay, well let's move on to censorship, and uh, well look, here is the uh, Joint Development Foundation. This is really, uh, uh, they're helping specification development projects. This is kind of a an incubator, if you like, uh, and it's got some big tech names behind it. Uh, And they have just uh, put some money into uh, a new program, which is being backed by Adobe, Arm, BBC, Intel, Microsoft, and TruePic. They're forming a coalition to develop end-to-end open standards for tracing the origin and evolution of digital content. That's good. It's gonna take this uh, little uh, group, this is a Content Authenticity Initiative from Adobe, Uh, Creating the standard for digital content attribution and they're going to mix it up with this, which is Project Origin, uh, which is from the BBC mainly, which is all about misinformation and the growing threat to the integrity of the information ecosystem. Uh, They're going to mix all this up and they're going to uh, provide a mechanism for platforms to preserve and read the provenance of uh, digital content, all with a view to deciding whether it's trustworthy or not and uh, labeling it as such.
1: Let me guess. So the BBC is in charge of this. So I guess all BBC content won't ever be audited. It's just automatically assumed to be trustworthy, right? Oh, how could you be so cynical? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. And that goes for CNN and Washington Post and all the other brands that you saw on that, that little uh, project.
0: Yes. Now, uh, weaponizing transhumanism. This is what we're going to label this little segment. Uh, this is all about uh, transhumanism. And it's uh, a, an article which has appeared in the NATO review. Now, the NATO review, of course, is uh, a a comment. Uh, It's not not NATO's policy. It's other people pushing policy in NATO's direction. Uh, And uh, so this article has appeared, Cognitive Biotechnology Opportunities and Considerations for the NATO Alliance. So let's just have a look at some of the things it says. Uh, Advances in biophysical, biochemical and behavioural technologies are beginning to turn science fiction into reality. These developments offer exciting possibilities while also raising issues with regard to ethics and responsible use. Uh, Cognitive biotechnology is the ability for technology to enhance and improve human thinking, sensing, coordinating, and acting upon the physical and societal environment. With CBT, our effectiveness, normally constrained by the limits of human physiology, can now be extended and augmented by biophysical, biochemical, or bioengineered means. Uh, and uh, for instance, in the last decade, scientists have accurately melded brain cells, brain signals, sorry, with machine interfaces to create mind control prosthetics. Uh, most recently, they have, uh, made this, uh, th- they have made this flow of information bi-directional creating prosthetics that can now feel sensation and send these feelings back to the brain. Uh, they say, uh, if humans can actuate, i.e. put into motion or action machines, and these machines can in turn actuate humans, Uh, then we have moved beyond the confines of our own physiology. Moreover, if these machines are mobile and can interact with our minds at a distance, then we've extended our reach beyond our physical limits. Uh, Transcranial direct current stimulation is an example they give. They say that's been shown to regulate the human brain itself, affecting the brain's executive functions, learning mechanisms, memory, language processing, sensory perception and motor functions. Uh, They say the technology also provides for the possibility of raising soldiers' cognitive and physical capabilities to analyze scenarios more easily and quickly, to retain and retrieve memories with greater acuity, to modulate perceptions of pain, to improve psychological self-protection, and to embed muscle memory and motor skills more quickly. Sounds like Super Soldier. Super Soldier is exactly what it is, uh, which is, and, and as you'll see now, so what they're saying is another controversial aspect of this is the potential to look inside the mind of the user to display and play back past memories on an external monitor, or even insert synthetic memories and images into the mind. Um, so they're talking about uh, the use of this for therapeutic. Uh, well,
1: uh, the, the lawnmower man. Uh, yes. I'm using all these uh, these these film uh, comparisons. And all this Mike, predictive but programming <laughs> yeah. from the
0: past. But look, uh, what they're talking about is uh, on one side. Uh, uh, making sure that future soldiers don't come out with PTSD and so on because mm-hmm. it's going to uh, attenuate uh, fear, it's going to attenuate feelings of pain and so on, uh, but also creating the robot soldier with the exoskeleton and, and the exoskeleton will be able to feed feelings back to the brain and so on. To the person operating uh, it. And yeah. So the question, Patrick, is who's behind this piece of uh, garbage that's been sent into the NATO review? Um, it is... Imperial College and John Hopkins University, the two major institutions that are also behind COVID policy.
1: Driving the pandemic uh, narratives, uh, you could say, Mike. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Well, in terms of transhumanism, uh, Imperial College is uh, absolutely a hotbed uh, of that. And, you know, a lot of this is because this is very trendy. Uh, There's a lot of money in this, and certainly it attracts a lot of attention from the TED crowd. And certainly the World Economic Forum are very, very interested in this as well. So there's lots of platforms for young people that are getting into this uh, area of technology, Mike, in Mm -hmm. education uh, and in research as well. So it is very seductive. It attracts a lot of the great minds, the great young minds. But where is it heading uh, exactly? And let's talk about the morals and the ethics uh, behind it. That's usually verboten uh, in this conversation. It it certainly is. It's all technology-led.
0: Uh, now, we were talking about the uh, the parallels in, in language being used between uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 policy and uh, environmental policy. Well, here is uh, Sir James Bevan, the uh, CEO of the Environment Agency. Uh, and he's uh, absolutely doing that. Uh, the climate emergency, he says, is the unseen pandemic uh, because left unchecked, it will kill more people and do much more harm than COVID-19. Uh, well, bearing in mind, uh, that, I mean That's possibly true in a sense, if, since the figures aren't, uh, aren't, aren't necessarily accurate with, that, with yeah. COVID-19. But anyway, uh, we'll move on. Uh, let's uh, have a look at this. In the same way we've worked together to tackle COVID-19, it falls, we will get the environment we pay for, we will get the climate we work for, uh, and uh, that's why the government is right to be putting so much effort into securing the right outcome at COP26 later in the year. I find that a fascinating uh, attitude, The government is going into COP26 with a right outcome in mind that they need to secure, uh, and they are going to be uh, encouraging, shall we say, all the countries that join them uh, for that conference in Glasgow in November uh, to uh, uh, in the same way that we did with the G7, with the rapid response mechanism. And if you don't remember this, this is Theresa May in 2017 or 2018 uh, at the G7 conference, Got all the other G7 countries to agree uh, to pursuing common narratives for government policy across all the country, all those countries. So, for example, well, she was using Skripal as the example at the time, but I think we've seen that with respect to to COVID19 more recently. A uh, common narrative pursued by everyone uh, in the case of COP26, uh, uh, the right outcome is going to be pursued.
1: So so James is talking about all these climate deaths, okay. Supposed to be one of the top environmentalists in the country. And uh, so other people are saying this too. Uh, They're saying that we need to act now because people's lives are at stake. We can't wait, we can't wait. We need to uh, pursue a zero carbon policy. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like zero COVID. Well, behind both zero COVID and zero carbon, you'll find, guess who? There he is again, it's Billy Goats. What does Billy Goats have to say? Uh, Bill Gates has a plan to save the world. Will the world listen? This is the question. So he's being absolutely feted by all of these mainstream uh, journalists right now, articles everywhere, interviews. So in the face of one of humanity's greatest challenges, Bill Gates, the Messiah, lays out his plan for attaining net zero carbon emissions by when? (laughs) We don't know, could be 2030, could be 2040, could be 2050. Could be twenty-one hundred. Who knows? And why is this? Well, this is because there's a climate crisis, Mike. So the the, the common. Fallacy or the lie that's being told by all of these people, mm. which has already been thoroughly debunked. If you go and look at the work of Doctor Bjorn Lomborg uh, out of Denmark, this idea that there's all these climate deaths that the UN has been projecting, I and mean, even the UN Secretary General quoted some outrageous number, mm. uh, millions of climate deaths. The the, the people who have died from weather events or what they call climate deaths, okay, has fallen dramatically from 1920 until the present day an unbelievable fall mm. almost to, to, to nothing i don't know what the percentage is but uh, uh, don't quote me on this but if you go look at beyond Longberg's presentation in sydney from one year ago it's on youtube from one year ago he'll explain this it's fallen like 90 something percent mm. okay so this is absolute canard okay people don't sit there uh, if the sea levels are rising over 100 or 200 years people don't just stand there and watch themselves drowned for 20 years they usually build dikes and things like that go ask the people in Holland what they did when the sea levels rose well they kind of adapted didn't they because human beings have this great trait of adaptivity but you wouldn't know it if you're listening to the climate experts and to Billy Goats uh, so where does that leave us here how are you gonna how are you gonna make this work how are you gonna make this zero carbon work well we got a clue here, Mike. Deutsche Bank, this is a little bit early. This report came out a few weeks ago, but it's nonetheless relevant. Deutsche Bank admits the EU will need eco-dictatorship to implement its Green New Deal. Uh, A senior economist at Deutsche Bank warns that for the EU's own Green New Deal to succeed, a certain degree of eco-dictatorship will be necessary. Okay, So they're already talking about this. You see the common thread
0: here, don't you? Well, they've, they've, they've primed this with COVID dictatorship, and uh, if we think that COVID dictatorship is going to go away, uh, no, it's going to morph into eco-dictatorship.
1: Zero COVID dictatorship. Zero carbon, carbon dictatorship. Where's democracy in this? I don't think they're planning to have much democracy in the future, and they're using these two phantoms. These two crises on their, that are happening now, we can't wait, must act now as the pretext uh, for all of these draconian policies mm-hmm. that are going to be dictatorial. They already are dictatorial, take a look around, mm-hmm. no surprise there. But um, so it's something that we'll be covering more in the future. Now, uh, <laughs> something interesting happened uh, yesterday, Mike.
0: Oh, what was that? Has Joe Biden woken up?
1: Joe Biden got his war on. Uh, his advisors woke him up to, to, to inform him that... that The U.S. has bombed Syria, Mike. Uh, So, again, uh, these are woke bombs. Uh, This is the new defense secretary here. They're putting him front and center, of course, because Joe is still with a cup of Ovaltine and his slippers on, uh, putting logs on the fire or something like that uh, in the White House. So here's the new uh, defense minister. The U.S. bombing facilities in Syria by Iran-backed militia. So they're, they're doing this, Mike, apparently to put pressure on uh, the Iranians to get back into the nuclear deal. But wait a minute, it's the US who left the Iran nuclear deal. The Iranians never left it. Uh, everyone else left it but them. So this is a strange sort of st- strategy that's going on here. Uh, so a- a- again, this is to isolate Iran. Yeah. Uh, and what does this mean? This means that Syria could be back on the target list. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly. We said before the election many times that Joe Biden, the Biden administration will be an absolute uh, warmongering uh, uh, vehicle for uh, for all of the interests that want to reform and uh, reshape politics uh, in the Middle East and certainly uh, they're going to be doing the bidding of, uh, of of Israel and other countries in the region like Saudi Arabia, like the Gulf states that wanted to re-destabilize, re-destabilize mm-hmm. uh, a country like Syria and Iraq as well. So that's back on the table. So there you go. This is uh, Joe Biden's getting his war on.
0: Okay. Well, okay. We'll have to leave it there for today because we're well over time. Um, Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll be back at the same time as usual, 1 p.m. on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.